In fact, I've been here 30 years, so it had to be longer than that. I, before that, I was bivocational. So not only was I a pastor of a church, but I also taught part-time at a very large Christian school, private school in Texas. And we had, and it was, like I said, it was a huge school between 1,200, 2,000 students. And, and so uh, with six grading periods, we had uh, what we called a PTM night. And that was for the parents to come up, talk to teachers about the grades the kids were making. And, and I didn't, you know, I didn't mind my, I had a great, great time. I taught Bible, so I was going to get a lot of good feedback from parents. But the teachers that I always was concerned for uh, was, they were the math teachers. Because, you know, the math teachers, think, think about this. If you teach creative writing, creative writing is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. It's just a little bit subjective. So if you have a kid in your class who's trying really hard, and really putting his or her heart into it. And maybe they're not the best writer in the world, but you can say, well, you know, that, that, that's pretty good. And you can put a B plus on there. But the thing about mathematics is you can't do that because there's an objective answer with mathematics. And, and I think that we need to talk about spiritual truth in terms of objective truth because we live in a postmodern subjective era where the idea is my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And we're, we're part of conversations every day when if we explain how we live our lives, somebody will say, well, I'm glad that works for you, but that's not how I see it. And, and certainly we can have different viewpoints about politics and, and, and things like that. But there are some basic underlying facts, like simple mathematics, that are objective truths. And so I want to talk to you about those. You know, simple math is true whether I know it or not or whether I believe it or not. And so what we're going to do is work for five weeks. We're going to look at five objective facts about God that basically shape our universe. They are how life works. And we're going to look at each one of these in regard to a particular simple math sign. For instance, I know last week we had to cancel some services, but if you were here last week, you heard Jonathan talk about how that God adds. If you have any action or interaction with God, he is always going to add to your life. And somebody will say, well, hey, wait a minute, Mark. I remember a verse in the Bible that says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Well, who said that? Job. What did Job not have? He didn't have Job chapter 1. If Job had had Job chapter 1, he would have known that Satan was the one who was subtracting things from him. He just said what he thought at the time. And he thought, God adds to me and God takes away. But again, what we learn is we look through scriptures is that God always adds to us in our lives. And I'm not being sacrilegious. I mean this with all my heart. I find it significant that Jesus died on a plus sign. God always adds. In fact, there's a term for God's interaction with us, and we call that term grace. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. If you have an exchange with God, God will always add to your life. Anytime you get close to God, you will always feel the giftedness that comes from being close to Him. Uh, this is a poor illustration, but I think about grandparents. You know, when my kids were little and I would take them to Texas to visit my parents, their grandparents, we were always going to come back with a whole lot more than we left with because, you know, that's just how grandparents are. You know, they're a little bit more blessed in life than they were perhaps when they were younger, and, and, they, and they take life so seriously because age just teaches us that, and they would want to load my kids down. And God is that way. He has all resources, and he values your life so much. And so anytime you have an interaction with God, he adds. Today, we're going to focus on the second sign, which is that Satan subtracts. And then later on, we'll talk about the equal sign and the, the multiplication sign and the division sign. But we're going to focus on this one here today. And as I said to you earlier in the talk, 
I don't know that I woke up this morning thinking, wow, I can't wait to talk about Satan. But as you know, I'm your spiritual leader if you're a new springer, and I have the accountability and responsibility. I'm going to have to stand before God someday, so I'm accountable to tell you the, what, what Scripture calls the whole counsel of God, and it's very important that we talk about Satan, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I have a lot of friends who don't believe in God, but even so, they have a sense that there's some benevolent aspect to the world. They may attribute it to nature, but they will, they will have a sense that there's some benevolent force in our world. And even those who might not consider themselves God followers, even agnostics, will admit to me, even though I haven't had him proved to me yet, there may be a God. And honestly, I think if we went out on the streets of Wichita or New York or Taiwan or any place, I think we could ask people the question, do you have a sense that there is a God? And most people would say, yes, I do. I believe in a God. I don't really know that much about who or what that God is, but yes, I believe in God. And inside New Spring here today, if I ask you, do you believe in a personal God? I mean, we just sang about him a few moments ago. I'm almost sure 95% of us would say, yes, Mark, I believe in a personal God. I believe in a God who knows my name cares about me, a God that I can pray to. We believe in a personal God. But here's where it gets dicey. If I were to ask you the question, do you believe in a personal Satan or do you believe in a personal devil? I think even within a church like New Spring, even if we're inclined to say, "Mm, yeah, I think I do. Truth of the matter is, I think in a practical sense, we struggle to believe in a real Satan. We believe in a real God But many of us have the concept that, well, there's evil in the world, and I think everybody feels the sense of subtraction that evil brings. But as far as really seeing it as the activities of a person, that's a different thing. And I think there are three reasons at large why our culture struggles to believe in a real devil. One of them will be uh, fantasy and entertainment. When you're a kid and you're dressing up for trick-or-treat, you know, the devil suit is just one of the suits that we have as an option. You know, the, the horns and the pitchfork and the fork tail. And then as you get older, you go see all the fantasy movies. And, of course, there's a hero and then there's an anti-hero. There's a villain. And so it's hard to sort out that distinction of a real spiritual force personality who is the source of evil and what we've seen in fantasy world. And some of us believe in Satan like we believe in kryptonite. You know, we believe in it, but in a fantasy sense. Or it could be that you hear Daniel say, Mark, I was university trained, and I've studied the religions, and I've studied the philosophies of the world. And here's the thing I've discovered about all of you people who are religious. We're not religious, but a lot of times we get classified that way. Here are people who will say, we understand how you guys roll. You, you invent a God. You believe that there's this benevolent presence in the universe, and you call that person God. And, of course, all of you guys... Because there's an opposite reaction to everything, opposite and equal reaction, because you've invented a God, you have to invent the nemesis. You have to invent an opposite and equal force that is the personage of evil. And to that person, I would say, well, first off, I I don't want to invent him. I'd be fine if there was only God. And although he may be opposite God, he is not God's equal. Then there is a third there's a third group of us, and I think this would probably, probably encompass more of us in the first two. And it would be a group of us who say, well, Mark, the way I see it is evil does exist in the world, but it exists as sort of an impersonal force. And Satan is sort of the personage that we create to personify evil. We believe in evil existing as a force. 
A lot of way people believe in karma. You know, I'm always amazed to hear Christ followers talk about karma. You know, the karma came back to bite me in the rear end, that kind of thing. Talking about karma. Have you ever thought about what it would take for karma to exist? You know, karma is the concept that comes from Hinduism and Buddhism, that what goes around comes around. Have you ever thought about what would, it's an impersonal force. Have you ever thought about what would be essential, necessary for karma to work? I mean, first of all, there has to be some force with the intelligence to observe the actions of all 7 billion people on the planet, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and not only to observe their actions, it would also have to be able to observe their motives as well. It would have to have, number two, the moral authority to know the difference between the rightness and the wrongness of all the conduct of all 7 billion people, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Because after all, if you're going to bring something around, you have to know what to bring around. So, that force would have to have the moral imperative to judge the difference between right and wrong. Third thing is that force would have to have the wisdom to know what's the appropriate response to the rightness and wrongness that's been done. And fourthly, that force would have to have the power to execute the appropriate judgment that all seven billion people deserve. Here's the point. It is the most insane thing in the world to believe in an impersonal force such as karma. Because anything that has that much intelligence, that much moral prerogative, or that much wisdom, or that much power, whatever that is, that's God. And it's very personal. So the fact of the matter is, there's no such thing as an impersonal force as karma. It's God. And God does know all 7 billion people. And He does see us 24-7. And He is able to evaluate our motives. And He is wise enough to know whether our conduct is right or wrong. And beyond that, He has the wisdom to know what's the appropriate response. And He certainly has the power to do whatever is appropriate. And it's not karma, it's a God. And God has told us from the very beginning, you harvest what you plant. You see what I'm saying? It's a ridiculous thing. It's just, it's, it's really almost to the point of insanity to believe in some sort of impersonal force. And so I say all that so that we will understand that when we open Scripture, Scripture is very plain, that just as there is a God who loves us very much, there is an enemy, there is Satan who hates us very much. And here's what we must understand. This is kind of like the fundamental concept of today. Our culture sort of believes that there is the concept of evil. I mean, after all, we see, you know, we turn on the news and we see masked rogue characters or black clad characters with knives cutting off the heads of innocent people. Or we see abuse. I mean, there have been several horrific cases lately where divorced husband and wives have such a bitter uh, relationship that a father has killed, murdered the children in an attempt to harm his wife. My goodness, what kind of world do we live in? And all of us feel, even within ourselves, that sense of brokenness. So we understand that there's a concept of evil, but the prevailing idea out there in the world is the idea of Satan arises out of this concept of evil. We have a concept of evil, so we create Satan. When in reality, when we look at Scripture, it's totally backwards because it's out of Satan that we get the concept of evil. Let me talk about that for a few moments. Who is Satan and where does he come from? And again, like I said, this is not probably my favorite. It's definitely not my favorite topic to talk about, but it's important for us. Long before there was a world, God created angels. Why he did, I don't know. 
I mean, God doesn't always invite me into the why room. In fact, God tells me in the book of Romans chapter 9 that uh, I'm not even to ask why he made me. God, God, God's talking about how that pottery doesn't ask the potter, why did you make me like this? So a lot of times God doesn't invite me into the Hawaii room, and he didn't when it came to angels. But we do know some factoids about angels, and since it's not a sermon on angels, I'm just going to give them to you real quickly. We know that angels are majestic and beautiful. Uh, they're spirit beings, but if one of them was to materialize here today, I believe there are angels here today, if angels were to materialize, we'd be blown away by how majestic and beautiful they are. Uh, we know angels are made to carry out God's instructions. God created them. The word angelos uh, in the Greek language means messenger. So they are beings that were created to do whatever God wanted done. We know they're extremely powerful. One angel in the Old Testament wiped out an army of 185,000 soldiers. So they're very powerful. They have various assignments. We know from Isaiah chapter 6 that some angels are just in the presence of God. They have the responsibility to give glory and praise to God. There are angels that are responsible to carry messages, like Gabriel carried the message to Mary that she was going to have a baby. And there are angels that are assigned to nations and cities and, and that kind of thing. I don't know a lot about it. I just read some things about it in Scripture. I believe we have guardian angels. I believe our children have guardian angels. We picked that up from Jesus. Jesus talked about the angels that guard our children. They have a front row seat in heaven. In other words, they have, they, they, if you're an adult, your, your angel is having to sit behind the angels for children. Which, by the way, I know we would never have anyone come to New Spring who would ever harm a child. But I want to tell you what, if anyone harms a child, you're in serious business with God. God may dispatch one of his angels to do business with you. But we know they have many assignments. There are hierarchies. There are angels that, that rule over other angels according to God's plan. And Scripture tells us that we're made a little lower than the angels. I, I take that to mean that we may look something like them, but we don't have the same powers that they have. Perhaps the most intriguing factoid about angels is that they were not offered a plan of redemption. In other words, the angels that sinned against God, we'll talk about that in just a moment, they were not given a second chance. In the book of 1 Peter, the Bible tells us that angels are very intrigued with God's plan of redemption. And not, not in the sense that they're jealous of us, they're just intrigued with the fact that God gave us another chance, and they love God's plan. This is why the night Jesus was born, the angels blew up the sky singing that night. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 15 that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when one sinner comes home. So the angels are really, they're really into the fact that God gives you a second chance called salvation. But from what we can understand about the angels, there was an angel at one point who was the most beautiful and perhaps the most powerful of the angels whose name was Lucifer. Lucifer means shining one. And he seems to have had the responsibility of leading the other angels in the praise of God in heaven. But you must know this about any creation that God makes, including you and me and or the angels. God never creates any being without a free will. Because what God deserves and desires more than anything else is our worship. And here's the thing. If God made me robotic, my worship would be worthless to him. So what he does is he gives me the free will so that when I do worship him and live a life that brings glory to him, then God is pleased. So God never makes any creation without a free will, and therein lies the issue. Because even the angels have a chance to rebel. And this angel Lucifer, who was the most beautiful of all the angels, at some point something went wrong inside his gear work, and he began to ask the question, why should God get all the props? Why should God get all the glory? Why shouldn't I get some myself? 
And thankfully, we have a couple of Jewish prophets who coach us up as to what went wrong before the world was ever created and help us understand how Lucifer became Satan. Let me read this to you. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 14, 12, God speaking. How are you fallen from heaven, O shining star? Now notice how I have that, the word star set off. Because in Scripture, star oftentimes is a synonym for angels. It has to do with the Hebrew language in the sense that it has to do with shining one. And it doesn't mean that the stars in the universe are actually angels. It's just that they share this concept of shining creations. So oftentimes, angels are referred to as stars. So that's what God is saying to Lucifer. O shining star, son of the morning, you have been brought down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Again, not the heavenly beings, angels. I will preside. Oh, that was pretty, pretty being full of yourself in Satan's case. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. God says, instead, you'll be brought down to the place of the dead, down to the lowest depths. Now, let's remember this, and I, I've forgotten to say this in a couple of my talks already this weekend. The idea is that Satan rules hell. Guys, Satan doesn't rule hell. Hell was made to punish him. I promise you, he does not rule hell. It is not his kingdom. It is not his domain. It is where God is going to give him what he deserves. Hell was never made for people. The Bible tells us hell was made for Satan and his demons. If a person chooses to go there, they will go to hell against God's wishes. So, in Ezekiel, the second Jewish prophet, uh, God says, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God. I'm not sure what that means. Verse 15, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. That statement could only be said to Satan. Couldn't be said to you and me because we never have been blameless. We were born broken. But God says to Satan, you were blameless in all your ways until the day the crookedness was found in you. Now let's go to the, to the writings of Jesus or the sayings, sayings of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his audience and he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You guys realize Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He was God who became human. And Jesus is saying to his audience, I was there the day that Satan got kicked out of heaven. I saw Satan fall. Maybe Jesus also said, I saw him fall because he came off my foot. I don't know. <laughs> but he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, this is where the world was created. Let me take you to Revelation now. You know, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Revelation is prophecy. has a lot to do with the future after, after you and me. Scripture teaches us that there's going to be a seven-year period of time, Bible calls it tribulation, in which Satan will get what he's always wanted, which is to be worshipped. And there will actually be a time in this seven-year period of time where Satan will be worshipped, and he will put his counterfeit Christ as world leader. Now, the Bible calls him Antichrist. I don't know what the world will call him, but you and I need to understand that whenever Satan has a kingdom, he wants to flip everything upside down, where good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And so consequently, his Messiah will be the personification of evil, as in contradistinction, Jesus was the, contra he was the personification of everything good. So when you go into Revelation, we're not surprised that we read a lot about Satan. Now, I want to pull one particular verse out of Revelation chapter 12, because it indicates something to us. It says, and you know, of course, Revelation's in metaphorical language. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Stars is a synonym for angels. 
So what we draw from that, maybe correctly or incorrectly, but pretty much universally, Bible scholars believe that when Satan rebelled against God, a third of the angels rebelled with him, and they were cast down to earth. So when you and I read about demons, what we're reading about is we're reading about the angels who rebelled against God. Jude talks about them in, in the little one-chapter book before Revelation. Jude calls them the angels who did not keep their first estate or their first assignment. Now, I'm not trying to freak you out because you don't need to go to your neighborhood and think, oh, no, there are demons out to get me. Listen, guys, Satan's work it, it goes like this. His most effective strategy with you and me is what he can get us to do to ourselves. Because after all, God wants to add to you. So what he wants to do is he wants to lie to you and make you believe that God is either not telling you the truth or he wants to harm you. But listen, here's the reason why I'm taking the time to talk to you about Satan today. And again, it doesn't give me any pleasure, but let me tell you this. Here's the thing. If we don't know what Satan is up to, we're going to blame one of two people or one of two sources for the evil in the world. We're either going to blame God, and how many people ask if there is a loving God, why is there evil in the world? Oh, why do we ask that question? You know, Evil comes out of Satan. We're either going to blame God or we're going to blame each other. Do you know that's, there's a great verse on spiritual warfare in the, in the Bible. It says our enemies are never people. You know, the Bible says we don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people. So here's the thing. Why is it important to know about Satan? If we don't believe in Satan's existence, we'll either blame God or I'll blame you. When in reality, we need to know where evil emanates from. Even so, somebody could say, Mark, you kind of lost me today. Um, all this history is really theology, and it's not helpful to me because I live in 21st century America, and I live in a broken, flawed world, and I'm dealing with people who are evil, and beyond that, I'm dealing with the evil inside of me. How is this helpful to me? Let me show you where it's real helpful. We're too humane to use mousetraps anymore. But back in the day, if you had mice in your house, you would buy a mousetrap. A mousetrap is a little mechanism where bait can be set out, and when the mouse, little mouse goes for the bait, there's a hammer that comes down on him, and the mouse loses his life. Now, here is the thing, and this is why it's important for us to understand what we're talking about today in the history of Satan. If a mouse goes to the trap and he thinks it's about cheese, he's dead. If a mouse could approach a mouse trap with a sense of history, he would leave the cheese alone. See, Satan's good at putting something shiny out there. He knows what you respond to. He knows what I respond to. And if we think temptation, here's the thing, because this whole message is about temptation, the solicitation to do stuff that can blow up our lives. If we think it's about the cheese, we're going to get caught every time. If we understand the history that there is a God who loves us and there's a Satan who hates us, and there's this cosmic struggle going on, and you and I are caught in the crossfire, we're not going to pay any attention to the shiny thing because we're going to understand what's going on. So that's today why I go through the history. Um, let's talk about our first parents for a few moments and how this came down. When God put our first parents in the, in the world, he made them in a perfect environment. But I'm going to tell you something now that we don't talk about enough. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them the title deed to the earth. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, take care of the earth. And he gave them basically the title deed to it. Now, Satan is standing back. He's already been kicked out of heaven. He knows he cannot go mano a mano with God. But he's looking at Adam and Eve, and he's saying, I think I can take them. 
And beyond that, what does he want? He wants the title deed to the earth. He wants control of the powers of the earth that God originally gave to our first mom and dad. And so what does he do? Well, he puts something shiny out in front of Adam and Eve. Now, I want you to listen to the exchange between our first parents and Satan as he talks to them. In chapter 3 of Genesis, the Bible says, he asks the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? Remember, it's not what he can do to us, it's what he can get us to do to ourselves. So now he's getting her to question God. And she says, no, we can have all the fruit of the garden except for the tree in the middle. And Satan says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat of it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. In fact, right now you just know good, but you don't know the dark side. Oh, Lord knows we know it now, don't we? Was he better off? Hardly. I mean, can you imagine a world without murder, without rape, without hatred, without prejudice, without racism? Can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine a world without selfishness? <laughs> wow. Boy, Satan really put something shiny in front of our first mom and dad. He said, look, here's a piece of fruit. You think about that. You know, you say, well, Mark, I think it's a piece of fruit thing kind of gets to me. Do you pay attention to the stupid things that people blow their lives up for today? Anybody catch the news on General Petraeus this week? He was a great leader. He was a great military you know, strategist. And yet he had an affair. And that sort of blew up his career. But if that wasn't enough, the woman he was having an affair with, he brought home classified materials, turned them over to the woman he was having an affair with so that she could write a book. And he had to plead guilty to a crime this week. Are you kidding me? One of the greatest military strategists of our time blew up his life because he's having an affair with a woman and does something that he would never dream of doing. And the former governor of, of Virginia, people who were talking about him as having presidential, <laughs> presidential possibilities. And yet he took some penny-ante bribes from a vitamin guy. And now it looks like he's going to prison. I think Satan's pretty good at this, or pretty bad at it, whatever you want to say. He gets people to blow up their lives for the cheesiest things. And somebody can say, well, Mark, I still don't know about the piece of fruit. Well, that's in chapter 3. By chapter 4, it's murder, as Cain kills his brother. And guys, he wants to do the same with you. He wants to put something shiny in front of you and me so that we will give away whatever it is he wants, which is probably our life or our destiny or our future. Could be our marriage. Could be our relationship with our kids. He wants to put something shiny out there. How do you beat him? And why am I preaching this talk? Listen, when we think about what Jesus means to us, we tend to think about him dying on the cross as well we should because the blood that came out of his body paid for our sins. Or we think about his resurrection, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks in, in Easter, and we really celebrate every Sunday. Well, we should think about that. But there's, an, there's something in Jesus' life that we really need to think more about. Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every way we were tempted, yet without sin. And here's the, thing that, here's the reason why that's significant. You and I need a Savior. We're flawed. We're broken. Our first parents surrendered the deed. And because of that, they came under Satan's judgment, which is why the only thing a person has to do to go to hell is absolutely nothing. We're just sort of born on the road. But God didn't want that to happen. So what he did was he brought his son, who was God, into the world, but he became human so that he could basically pinch hit and pinch run for us. But here's the deal. 
You have to be perfect to go to heaven. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. Jesus has got to do it for me. If he does one thing wrong, then there is no plan B. So you realize that if Jesus slips one time and does one thing wrong, there it goes. Our only chance. We can pack our bags for hell. So, thankfully, we don't know everything Jesus was tempted with, but the Bible does include one encounter that Jesus had with Satan. And by the way, there's, no, there's nothing gentlemanly about Satan. He'll always hit you when you're down. He'll hit you when you're sick, when you're depressed, when you're worn out. If you've ever dealt with temptation amazingly, think about how many times it's when you were really going through a hard time, and the next thing you know, you get tempted to do this crazy thing. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. Man, I've only fa- the most I've ever fasted for was 21 days. And I can tell at that point I was weaker. But 40 days. So Satan comes along and he says, hey, got a deal for you, Jesus. You're hungry. Look at these rocks out here. You're the son of God. Why don't you just command these rocks be turned into bread? If I'm Jesus, I'm saying, what is the deal with you and food? But anyway, he, he didn't say that. Um, and he just said, you can eat. Now, I want you to hear Jesus' response. Jesus said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't get into the discussion about whether he's hungry or not. He just says, it is written. That's a a statement that infers past. It is written. Well, Satan said, well, okay, all right, that didn't work. Um, You know, you say you're the son of God, but a lot of people don't believe you. So he took Jesus up to this high point on the temple. He said, tell you what. He said, I've been reading the Bible too. And I've been reading over in the book of Psalms that if you, you know, the angels will protect you. So if you jump off this tower, everybody will see the angels come and catch you. It'd be very impressive. And people will believe you're the son of God. Jesus said, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So now Satan has to bear down and come to Jesus with a pitch across the plate. So he says this, because he knows Jesus. I mean, he said, basically, he's been reading Psalm 2. He understands very clearly all the kingdoms of the world will come under God's Messiah. And he knows what God has promised. But he also knows that between Jesus and all those kingdoms is a cross. So Satan says to Jesus, tell you what I'll do. Because after all, your first parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they surrendered kingdom authority over to me. Tell you what, I have all the kingdoms of the world. If you will bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. You won't even have to go to the cross. Well, you and I know, and this is how Satan's shiny things always work. Had Jesus done that, and he had all the kingdoms of the world, but if he was worshiping Satan, who would still own all the kingdoms of the world? Yeah. Jesus said, away from me, Satan. Get out of here. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, here's what I noticed, and this is where you and I ought to really pay attention. When Satan came to Jesus with something shiny, Jesus always reminded him of history. In effect, Jesus was saying, I know who you are. I know where you're headed. I know who I am. I know where I'm headed. Take your shiny thing and go to, or or get out of here. (laughs) See, every time Satan came to Jesus with something shiny, Jesus said, it is written. He went back to the history. And that's what you and I need to do. When Satan comes to you, if you're married and says, hey, look at that woman over there. You'd really, boy, it'd be great to have sex with you. And she's been giving you the eye. Well, he's putting the, he's putting the cheese on the trap. If you think it's about the cheese, you'll wind up having an affair with that woman probably or with that man. 
But if you say, wait a minute, this is God's cosmic enemy, and I'm caught in the crossfire, and I can blow up my life with doing this, and I don't, I don't want to get into his history. I want to be part of God's history. I want to be part of the life where God adds. You'll say, hey, not for me. I mean, if God is trying to bless you, and, and you say, wow, you know, I'm being offered this party drug, or you know, I'm, I'm being tempted to take something that doesn't belong to me, it's the history of knowing who Satan is and who God is that will help you. Well, I'm out of time. I have just a few minutes left. And there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about when it comes to Satan so that you would know more about him. I'd like to talk to you about uh, how that Satan's number one strategy is to lie to you about God or lie to you about people. I'd like to talk to you about how he'd like to make you think that the people that are doing uh, things uh, in your life that, that really he's doing, that I'd like to talk to you about how he, he wants to make you think they're doing them. I'd like to talk to you about how he's busy setting up a world system where wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong. And I would like to talk to you about how I think we're probably getting very close to the last days. But I only have a few minutes left, so I want to tell you the thing you need to know most about Satan. And I want to take you now to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter is saying something. He is saying, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy. See, here's the thing. What Satan would like to get you to think is that he's sort of an impersonal force and he's sort of against the whole world. What God wants you to know is he's a real person and he's your enemy. He's not just my enemy or the church's enemy. He's your enemy. And Peter is saying, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I've never enjoyed these shows, but I've seen a few of them on like National Geographic where, you know, it's, it's a you know, picture over in Africa or Asia, and you've got, you know, a flock of gazelles, and all of a sudden here comes a lion or a cheetah, and then, you know, the lion will begin to pursue the gazelles, and the whole flock or her, whole herd will begin to run, but then there's always that moment where the lion locks on to one particular one, and that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, you're a great enemy, Satan, is looking for somebody to lock onto. The guy who said that was probably, I'm going to guess around 67, 68 years old. And by this point, he's a longtime pastor. But about 35, 36 years before that, he had been a young ex-fisherman who was a follower of Jesus. And it was the night Jesus was going to be arrested. And Peter, I think, was like, me, in some regards, and maybe some of us, Peter shot off his mouth before he thought a whole lot. And Jesus was telling them he was going to be crucified. Peter's saying, hey, man, you know what? I'm with you all the way to the end. Whatever you go, I'm going. And Jesus said something to Peter. And we find this in the Gospel of Luke. Basically, Jesus was saying, look, Peter, you're telling me what you think is going on on earth, but I'm God, and I know what's going on in heaven, and I know something you don't know. Let's read it. He said, Simon, look out. Satan has asked. The Greek word means he's demanded permission. We understand from Job chapter 1 how that works. Satan has demanded permission. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, I know something you don't know. Satan has locked on to you. He has picked you out of the herd. Jesus said his job, he's, he wants to sift you like wheat. I love this. But he said, I've prayed for you, Peter. By the way, he's praying for you. Do you know that? Scripture tells us he's at the right hand of God, always interceding. He is calling your name to the Father every day. And Jesus said to Peter, look, I, 
you're not listening to me. And, and the thing that if you read the language that Jesus basically says, he's going to get you. You're going to lose this battle. But I've prayed for you that when you come back, that you'll strengthen the rest of these guys. But guys here, listen to me. Please listen to me. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere in the world. He can only be in one place at one time. I don't know where he bases out of. Is it Las Vegas? Is it Washington, D.C.? Uh, <laughs> Tehran? I don't know. He's always on the move, I guess. And, and we know this from Scripture. There are demons assigned to different, different nations and so on and so forth. We read that in the book of Daniel. But here's the thing. I really don't, Satan doesn't know the future, but I think he senses when somebody has potential. Why would he lock on to Peter? He, he didn't know the future, but you and I do. We know that Peter did, he did screw up that night. And we know that three times Peter denied the Lord. And he went out and he wept bitterly and he thought he was finished. But we also know 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a message and basically the church was born. Thousands of people came to faith. And I'll tell you what I think is really funny about this. I don't even think Peter knew he was preaching a sermon. Everybody thought these guys were drunk. And all Peter did was step up to explain, no, they're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel talked about. I think he preached the great sermon at Pentecost thinking he was explaining that everybody wasn't drunk. <laughs> so Satan didn't know the future, but I think he suspected, I got to get this guy because if I don't get him now, he could re be really dangerous to me. See, I think if Satan brings temptation to you, I think he's scared of you, honestly. I mean, if, if you have stuff, I, I mean, I'm talking to young people here today. I'm talking about people, to young people in junior high and high school. And it's like, you just like have all this temptation in your life. I just think it's because Satan has looked at you and said, if I don't get her, she could really be dangerous to me. And that's why it's so important that you know the history. I had planned to bring this message to you about temptation. Because I thought it was what it was about, and I still do. And I don't put anything into dreams. I really don't. But I got to tell you what happened to me last night. In the middle of the night, I'm dreaming. And I'm dreaming that it's prep day. And I've got to get up and prep for a sermon. Man, Wednesday is my prep day. I mean, I close out the rest of the world and I prep. I've been working on this talk for, for months. And boy, Wednesday, the world shuts down. And and I wake up from that dream and I'm thinking, why in the world? Tomorrow is Sunday. I'm in the middle of preaching five times. Why would I dream that tomorrow is prep day? Oh, that's kind of freaky. I went back to sleep. And then all of a sudden, I had dreamed again. And I had this overwhelming sense of being reminded that what Satan wants to steal more than anything else is people's souls. Because I didn't mention that last night. And I went back to sleep and I thought, that's interesting. And the next dream I had, one more time, I had the dream that said what Satan wants to steal more than anything else is people's souls. And I don't know. I don't put his stock in dreams. But I think that's kind of quirky, don't you? It might just be that there's somebody here tonight, and you could be close to eternity, or today rather. And it could be that God is saying, Mark, don't forget to tell people that what he would like to steal more than anything else is someone's eternal destiny. Man, if he can put something shiny. I mean, here's the question Jesus asked. He said, what will a person trade for his soul? 
What does a person profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Satan will put something shiny up there that says, go after this instead of Jesus. But what would it be worth if you lost your eternal soul? So, honestly, because it felt like God was kind of jabbing me a little bit last night, let me just ask you the question. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Have you, have, here's the thing, you know, yes, Satan can do all kinds of damage in our lives, but what God is wanting us to do is to take our eternal soul and leave it in safekeeping with Jesus because he can never touch it that way. That's why Jesus was telling Peter, Satan can win the battle, but he can't win the war. I prayed for you. And if you haven't invited Jesus into your life, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer because God is just simply saying he wants a big yes from you that you will trust Jesus. If you want to pray this prayer with me, I'll pray it slowly so you can think about it. It's not the words. This is not a humda 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 kind of thing. This is about you giving your soul to Jesus Christ and trusting him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm flawed and broken. And I can't fix myself. But I believe you did what I can't do. I believe you lived a perfect life. And then I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe God raised you from the dead. And I receive you as my savior and my king. I trust my eternal soul to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that could have happened real quickly. And you say, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to me. I have a gift I want to give you. All you got to do is take your talk to us card and go back to guest services. It's in the middle of the lobby. With the time change, we're not quite as congested as we normally are, so it'll be a little easier. You can go to the middle of that lobby, or there's one, a small one back by the coffee shop, and all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give you the DVD, the book I wrote, and then also a coupon for a new Bible. Guys, thanks for being here. Next week, we go to another level of mathematics. God bless. See you soon.